0: Our guest tonight is an old friend, he's been here before, he's a man whose work I much admire, Michael Shermer, who is, among many other things, the founding publisher and the editor-in-chief of Skeptic Magazine, which is just what it sounds like. It uh, shows up all the fraud and all the mere confusion and stupidity that parades as knowledge. Uh, And he's done a new book, Uh, this is about fourth or fifth in line, titled The Borderland of Science, Where Sense Meets Nonsense. I offer you, Michael, a quote. And you'll recognize it. It's from uh, the New Testament. I forget which of the uh, Gospels. But uh, Pontius Pilate asks what is truth and will not stay for an answer. You ask what is truth in this book.
1: That's the basic concern. That's right. What we're after here is trying to discern how it is we know anything about the world. And if science is the best method we have of determining truth with a small t in this case with science then how can we discriminate between good science bad science and my previous books dealt with this in a black-and-white way that that is we have good science and we have pathological science or pseudoscience or whatever but 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 there's a there's a gray area in between that I'm exploring in you this
0: you've got book. a lot of uh, wonderful visits that you make in this book and a lot of wonderful capers that you undertake you are an active investigator one of them is to uh what sounds like a very idyllic setting it's someplace out there in california where you live <laughs> uh the uh, it's in la, la jolla isn't it deepak chopra's oh, yes. Uh, equipage in la jolla uh deepak chopra has an md he's from india but he pra- practices what he uh, what does he call that brand of medicine uh, Ayurveda. yeah Ariveda, you know? right uh and uh <laughs> a friend of mine wrote an article about him and chopra sued uh, that friend is Andy Skolnick, whom oh, you may know,
1: yes, who uh, worked for yes, the yes. Um,
0: Bulletin of, for the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, and uh, they were sued by Chopra. Uh, supposedly, he felt he had been libeled. Uh, the thing was settled. Uh, Are you libeling Chopra in this book? Because you certainly say you think there's nothing to his medicine I I think
1: there's a way to do it without libeling somebody, although I suppose since it's America, people can sue anybody for anything. Uh, My point on discussing Deepak was that uh, in 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 a way, it's it's complimentary to him. I'm just saying that all the foo-foo mm-hmm. stuff surrounding his claims is what sells. It's the sizzle that he's selling. You go to his place in La Jolla. It's on this beautiful cliffs overlooking the the Pacific Ocean with the waves crashing below. And you go in, and they have mm-hmm. this thick carpeting and tapestries on the wall and these you know beautiful uh, tans. And you are uh, promised California not only the women. cure of
0: whatever ails you, but you're promised. A new elevated level of intelligence, of oh, yes. sexual vigor, the, uh, oh, of yeah. aesthetic appreciation—they're—they're of they're offering all the
1: stuff we want to be what, What's true. supposed to give that to
0: you? How uh, does Chopra? Uh, oh well, it's give you inter- those it's gifts?
1: it's a very fuzzy integration of mind and body and positive thinking and and that sense the atom is mostly vacuous and empty. So, too, then, does thoughts flow through your brain and affect cancer cells. And I mean, it, it makes these giant leaps like that that I never understand, actually, what he's saying, and I don't think anybody else does either. I don't even think he does, but but it, against the sizzle, it sounds good. He's got that Indian accent, which sounds very good. To Americans, any kind of foreign accent mm-hmm. you know, elevates IQ by 10 points. And, um, and he throws around a lot of uh, scientific-sounding terms, quantum effect and the parallel universe and the mirror of this and the, so on and so forth, and it, it, it sounds like science. And what we do at the Skeptics is try to discern what sounds like science and what actually is science. What
0: else sounds like science these days but isn't, and is at the same time uh, of great interest oh, to well, the general
1: I, public? I, I think the whole um, intelligent design creationist movement now, they've, they've gotten smart. Uh, they're moving beyond the, the old fundamentalist uh, young Earth yeah. creationist. The Earth was created 4,000 mm-hmm. years ago and the flood carved out the Grand Canyon. The new guys have dumped all that stuff. They know the, the universe is 10 to 12 billion years old, the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. Clearly evolution is true and it happened, But but God intervenes periodically to perform some miracle to create this intelligently designed universe here and there. And so their arguments have gotten more sophisticated. Our, yeah. our, our new issue of Skeptic is devoted to that. One of the people who does that. a good
0: deal of that is also out in California, professor of law named Paul Johnson. Now, Philip Johnson. Philip, yeah. Johnson. Philip he's be, Johnson. He's uh, been on this program. Yeah,
1: he's at uh, UC Berkeley, and uh, he argues against evolution like a lawyer would. And that's mm-hmm. what he is. He's a lawyer. So y- you would expect the arguments to go as they do, but that's the difference between the law and science. In the law, you're arguing for a black-and-white case that if this... One is right, one is wrong, guilty, innocent. If evolution can be proved to be wrong or flawed in some logical way, therefore the other model he's presenting must be the right one. But of course in science it doesn't work that way. It's entirely possible that evolution isn't true, although I don't doubt it for a second. Uh, But if it was, it wouldn't mean that some other model is right. You still have to prove the other model, which creationists have never done on their own. The last time you were here, I think it was the last time, or or the time before,
0: was it? we uh, gave you an alternative identity. Yes, we did. That was you f- were Sri uh, Leacham Rembre,
1: <laughs> the Vedic philosopher, <laughs> the Vedic philosopher who was
0: also a mind reader. Yes, uh, and you did a cold reading on some of our listeners. Now uh, we're going to listen to another true mind reader. Okay, uh, and we're going to. Uh, this is from the annals of this very radio program. So you're a skeptic about mind reading, but after all, we get some tremendous demonstrations. People who can just uh, asking perhaps the birthday or the sign or whatever of another even over the radio some people seem to have this seem to really penetrate and get to the very essence of the nature of the problems of the aspirations of the experience uh, of the person that they're talking with and one such visited us a long time ago but I've got a tape of it and I want you to hear it and you and all of our listeners will hear it right after we pause for these words and we're back to Michael Shermer. Uh, uh, We are drawing from, and will draw from, uh, through tonight's program, his new book, uh, The Borderlands of Science, Where Sense Meets Nonsense, that is, by the way, published by Oxford University Press, and that in premature testifies to the significance of the book, but it's at the same time utterly engaging and uh, amusing, even though it also teaches you a great deal. But you were rather skeptical about mind reading, and I don't think you'll be able to maintain your skepticism after you hear the following. Okay. Okay. here is uh, a fellow who was with us way back in the 1970s. Just listen.
2: Let's send one more, another reading by the magnificent Zoran. Good evening, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, your birth date uh, first? Uh, it is October 2nd, 1942. October 2, 1942. Mmm, interesting. And, and give me a, a number, any number, one, two, or three digits between one and uh, 1,000. Uh, 900. 900 even? Yes. Oh. The man that uh, knows his mind and does not uh, take a backseat to anyone else's opinion. Um, again, uh, you are the kind of person which, um, I believe that you, you might very well have a fascination with uh, uh, hardware or electronics, uh, fascination with it, uh, Amounting in some cases to almost uh, too much respect for so that sort of thing that you, you may even have turned into by now a, a fear or a uh, resentment of technology. Uh, you'll have a natural good taste. Um you have this is a uh, this is only a this is a tendency of people, um of people are uh, that fine, it, uh, it, it would appear that uh, you may have uh, lower back problems, if not now, then certainly uh, in the future. But uh, some sort of lower back problems that could be quite serious unless uh, attended to. Um, you have an inherent desire to travel that may or may not have been uh, uh, satisfied uh, by this time. And uh, this desire to travel could be very productive for you. Um, I think that there may be here uh, somewhat of a regret that uh, you should not uh, allow to take the better part of your nature, uh, regret uh, that you have not perhaps made use of educational um, facilities, that you have not educationally, academically fulfilled yourself to the extent that uh, you might have wished to, and uh, of course that can be remedied uh, in, in many cases, but it should not be allowed to uh, to rule your life. Um, there is uh of recent uh, vintage you may tend to have that uh, that weakness you've got to start saying it's time for me uh, this is, is is my life i cannot allow the other people to interfere with my life uh you've got to start to live for yourself and you no doubt have said this to yourself in the past but you haven't uh, meant it uh, enough that you have acted upon it that's so particular and specific an interpretation. I must, of course, ask the caller, is, uh, uh, are we close? Uh, is the Magnificent Zoran close to uh, uh, accuracy about you, sir? Yes, it sounds uh, very good. I would say about 90, 95% of what he's saying. Can, now, can you tell us something about yourself to, uh, to demonstrate uh, that the Magnificent Zoran has read you correctly? Okay, I am, uh, my work entails in uh, electronics and in uh, metal fabrication. Isn't that amazing? And the very first thing the, magi- the magnificent Zoran said was that you were interested in technology, yeah. and hardware, that sort of thing, uh, yeah. material dis- uh, technology. But nice. my education is, is holding me back, which I am going to school, you know, I have in the past, and I still am going to school to increase my knowledge and my work, which does hamper my work. And uh, that is also true of what he said. And, uh, Incredible. And also in traveling, I do like to travel, but I, I tend to relax on traveling because of the world and the needs of today and uh, uh, the way the world situation is. And, uh, but you do have the, the, the desire, desire to. Uh, and, and, and who is Anne or Annie? Mm, no, it doesn't ring no bell. That's one place where Zoran was wrong. But of course, you did say, sir, didn't you, that. That's either somebody in present life or in time guess, to come. It could very well be in the past. It could be in the immediate future, very close to this uh, moment in time. Was there anything else in which Zoran
1: failed to hit the exact mark, sir? Uh,
2: no, I can't recall of anything. Everything else was quite accurate.
1: Hey, that guy's amazing.
0: There you have it. Isn't he, in fact, amazing?
2: <laughs>
0: uh we will now tell those who didn't catch on that, in fact, that is Old Amazing, the father of us all. That's James Randy, otherwise known as the Amazing Randy. And that, I think, was the first or the second program we did with Randy. It goes way back to the beginning of my tenure at this program, perhaps 1975 or thereabouts.
1: Indeed, and uh, in in Randy's reading there, you see all the classic uh, characteristics of a a cold reading, which you literally read someone cold. It's done by astrologers, palm readers, tarot card readers, psychics, mediums. They all use the exact same technique. What are they? Just like you heard Randy say. Well, first of all, you say a lot of things. So you only have to get a couple of hits for the, the person to be impressed. And the people remember the hits. They forget the misses. You speak in generalities. You say it could be this, it could be that, and they'll tell you which one it is. Uh, you all and, and everybody goes through these things. There, there are statements that are true for everybody. There's you've had some doubts. There's something holding you, you also back. Also throw in
0: a little flattery. You notice that early in there when the man said the number he chose was 900. A man who knows his mind. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah,
1: very positive. Now, who's going to say, no, I don't know my mind, or I can't make up my mind, or I'm not very positive, I don't have a good sense of humor? I mean, these are common things that we all like to hear about ourselves. And, and so, um, you know, it's the P.T. Barnum reading. The P.T. Principle is that you have something for everyone. And that's
0: In the current is. issue of Skeptic Magazine, you do an expose of some fellow who's doing this stuff for real. Yes. Uh, Uh, This is a guy named John
1: Edward. He Mm -hmm. uh, calls himself a a, a psychic medium. He talks to the dead. And he talks to the dead in a New York studio, television studio for the Sci-Fi Channel. Mm -hmm. Of all places for the dead to show up, they, for some reason, show up in New York at a television studio just in time for the taping. Uh, and people get readings. Of course, they want this to be true. Every one of them that goes there has lost somebody, and uh, we've all lost somebody. And wouldn't it be nice if it were true? And he does exactly what you just heard Randy doing. He speaks in generalities, keeps it real positive. He wants you to know he loves you. Uh, you know, He forgives you for this and that. He's no longer in pain. Uh, he even seems to get specific things like the cause of death. But, of course, if you listen to him long enough, it's always... Heart disease, cancer, heart disease, cancer, or maybe an accident thrown in once in a while. He he pretty much gives the cause of death in about the same ratios that actually happen
0: demographically. If you're talking to your uh, your client uh, face-to-face, as I gather he does, does he?
1: Uh, he does it. He can do it over the phone. But, but if you're doing it face-to-face, you get extra cues. It's even better. As, you, better. as you're
0: improvising, right. you can get little flicks of attention and little well, subtle nods which tell tell you I'm on the right
1: track. That's voice right. cancer. That's right. And, uh, and with a studio audience, you can start broad. You can you can sort of sweep your hand over to a general area and say, I'm getting a George here. I don't know if George yeah. is someone who uh-huh. passed over. If George is somebody you know. If George is somebody who's sitting right here. And then you wait and, and, and somebody <laughs> will raise their hand. Oh, George is my dad and he passed away. Yes, well, George is here in the studio. In fact, I see a man standing behind you now. Uh, is this your father, please? Uh-huh. And uh, His name is George, right? And Now, honest to gosh, the people afterwards will say something like, you know, he knew the name of my father was George, and I didn't tell him. <laughs> and, <laughs> and until you play the tape back and show them, they, they really don't know that. Okay, but all of this is flummery, it's charlatanry,
0: and it's been amusing people, or sometimes drawing them in for thousands of years, one way or another. That's necromancy in the modern form, but it's been things like this have been practiced for 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years. You are also interested in uh, the fuzzy realm in the which borderlands, yes. Borderlands I mean, in fact, you draw a distinction between three kinds of science, uh, namely uh, nor- dependable science, science or normal science, uh-huh. um, borderland science, where one isn't quite sure whether there's yeah. any possibility of getting confirming evidence, and essentially pseudoscience.
1: Right, and I think all claims begin somewhere in the pseudoscience realm or in the, more likely, the borderlands realm where they haven't been fully tested yet. So all legitimate scientific theories we have today at some point had just started off and they weren't proved. So we have a lot of these areas like the superstring string theory or conscious theories of consciousness, theories of uh, of, of economies and how the economy works. Th- these things are not fully tested and, and proven out yet and so they're in that fuzzy borderlands. and. And so what do we do with those, and and what we do is we continue testing, and I use consciousness and, and the whole subject of hypnosis as a great example because hypnosis, mm-hmm. and, and you know a lot about this, Mel, since this was your field, but this whole idea Well, actually, of,
0: in my irresponsible youth as a very assistant professor at Yale, one of my first publications was on hypnosis. It was? Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. Well, I find it interesting that clearly something is going on with hypnosis, and we're not quite sure what. Mm-hmm. If the brain is modular, that is, it consists of a series of specific modules uh, adapted for certain functions, <clears throat> and there's some also some overriding general module that runs the whole thing, an underlying sort of hard drive, if you will, uh, then perhaps what happens in, consci- in, in hypnosis is su- some part of the brain is suppressed and and another part is the fantasy prone personality part of you or whatever comes through and it's interesting to me that only about 10 to 15% of the people in an audience when you when you do these tests can be deeply hypnotized and yeah. i think that's telling us something about this is that it does have something to do with fantasy prone uh, imaginative personalities and not everybody has them uh, that extreme do you know the work of martin orne Yes. Uh,
0: I I knew Martin. He died only a few years ago. He and I were members of a a work group on hypnosis, Mm -hmm. Uh, the senior member of which was a man that you do quote in the book, namely Ernest Hilgard.
1: Oh, yes. Um, I like Hilgard's research. It's very interesting. Uh,
0: And uh, actually, there was a fellow named Andre Weizenhofer who worked with Hillgard earlier on. He and I were graduate students together at Michigan. None of that is particularly to the point, but there, in this work group of people who've been doing research on hypnosis, there was always the basic question, is this a real state, or is there some very hot
1: role-playing going on? Yes, well, the there's probably was, some of that, too.
0: That term was coined by Theodore Sarban.
1: You know Ted Sarban's yes, uh-huh. work on yep. hypnosis as role-playing? Right. Well, there's probably some of that, and it's easy to, it's not easy, but you can fake a hypnotic state. Although the good hypnotists, particularly the stage ones that do this every night, they've gotten very good at Mm -hmm. weeding people out. That's why you'll see them. Uh, You know, I have a show on Fox Family called Exploring the Unknown, and we we hired a hypnotist, professional hypnotist, a stage guy. He does it for entertaining Mm -hmm. purposes because he's a real pro. And he said, I'll need about 40 or 50 people to start with and we thought, well what's that all about? Well what it was all about was he got out of that forty or fifty people, he got about a dozen up on the stage and out of those, he ended up with four or five that were deeply, deeply hypnotized. Mm-hmm. So about ten percent. And so clearly right there it's telling us that not everybody can do this. And uh, But what I like about Hilgard's stuff is that, that concept of the hidden observer, that somebody mm-hmm. is in there, something, some brain modules, keeping track of what's going on while you're hypnotized and some other part of your brain doesn't know what's going on. And so you really can't Program somebody like the Manchurian candidate and have them assassinate the president. Well,
0: I don't know. The way I got into hypnosis, not out of any great interest in hypnosis, but rather in uh, an interest in attitude theory. Mm. Uh, and I had developed a model, uh, one of the balance theories. This was once a, a going orientation in social in the psychology of attitude study, and a, a theory concerning. They're either called balance theories or consistency theories. They concern the need to maintain affect and cognition in coordination. Mm. Uh, you can. The standard way of changing an attitude is you argue cognitions. You think that so-and-so is a good candidate. I tell you, do you know that he was arrested for fraud <laughs> when he was a uh, uh, in the state legislature? That's putting in new information, which might right. or change your orientation towards the candidate. The less common way, but theory would demand that you demonstrate that it also happens, is that you do a direct manipulation of affect, and you will then get Resultant cognitive changes. And so we would hypnotize people and tell them, uh, for example, one thing was this is a long time ago at Yale University, many of these were medical students, uh, and one of the attitude areas we used was socialized medicine, uh, federal medical insurance for all persons. It was even before Medicare was fully established. Mm -hmm. uh, And they were all for it, and we would uh, tell them, when you wake, uh, you will be against the idea of federal medical insurance. The mere, mere idea will fill you full of loathing, but you won't remember having been told this until you're given uh, the word geology as a signal. And how did it uh, work? And Well, for those <laughs> who had been preselected mm-hmm. by a psychiatrist who worked with me and did the hypnotizing uh, and it selected the people, you then got considerable alteration in their cognition. Mm-hmm. They now had mm-hmm. all sorts of reasons why federal medical insurance was a bad idea, and we tested for that with certain instruments that we had developed, whereas earlier they would have argued and did argue, presented an opposite cognitive structure. Federal medical insurance was desirable because of the payoff A, B, C, and D. Mm. Um, But the question was always, are they sort of going along with a gag, Mm -hmm. or are they really going through this sort of uh, interior change? The great payoff for me was with another student, also a medical student, Uh, We did about three or four experiments on this, and this guy was, um, the attitude issue was America should no longer give economic aid to foreign countries, Mm. and he rejected that Mm -hmm. completely, as uh, he was against the proposition America should not give aid to foreign countries. Mm -hmm. When hypnotized, he was told uh, he would be, um, no, I'm sorry, America should give aid to foreign countries. He was in favor of that. When he was hypnotized, he was told he will uh, awaken being very opposed to America giving aid to foreign countries. What I didn't add is that this fellow was a Nigerian mm. uh, who was a medical mm. student at Yale, and uh, he performed just as predicted, uh, but one still wondered, you know, is this a kind of hot role-playing, mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. Ted Sarban calls it, or do they in some sense know that they're going along with the gag? But we read it in this experiment, we, we let it run for about a week before we removed the amnesia mm. by giving the signal. And when we did, he was a very pleasant fellow, very spirited and very um, uh, very easy to amuse. He started laughing uproariously. And I said, what are you laughing about? He said, now I understand what I did up at Stores the other night. Stores is Stores, Connecticut. He had been to a session for high school students from all around Connecticut uh, and a, <laughs> part of a panel organized by a Yale professor on the future of Africa. <laughs> and he amazed all of the other African panelists by denouncing... Uh- uh, America giving foreign aid he presented your position he presented that position <laughs> yeah. so there
1: in real life he was yes. acting yeah, this yeah. and that all right so really stu- yeah. that really stunned D- now me you see, now, how can a skeptic refute that clearly something is going on he's not just I role don't know. playing well, he's not role playing because you're not there he's not on your right, stage right, right? Right, right and and well, to me this brings up a, a deeper question in this borderlands area is the difference between brainwashing and influence this was a kind of brainwashing. yeah it is i should tell you this what was funded by, by
0: the office of naval research uh-huh. they have re- their
1: motivations they have their ways of finding... Well, out. I
0: never wanted to do it again, and I never did, because it just seemed... Yeah. After this particular experience I've just told you, I felt this is a little bit But the question is, could dangerous. you do
1: that with anybody? No, I'm sure you could susceptible? Right, I think some are more susceptible to that than others. No matter how committed they are to their original position, some will change. Some and nobody
0: won't. who's listening should ever try it with anybody, because it's immoral, Yeah. I would now say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I had... Very poisy so, feelings about it once we achieve the effect with this fellow. You know,
1: we have this concept of cults and that cults practice brainwashing, but, but general religions, which we don't call cults, they practice influence. Uh, and what's the difference? Uh, I mean, I think there's a, gray, a, a pretty subtle fuzzy gray area mm-hmm. there where it's not so different. <laughs> and some people are more susceptible to the influence There is a great,
0: others. quote, scientist, and you talk about a number of important men of science and women of science, although they've been more men than women uh, historically.
1: Mm -hmm. That's changing.
0: uh, That is changing indeed. Uh, There is a great quote, I say once again, uh, scientist whom you analyze rather closely, and he was in the business of analyzing people, namely Sigmund Freud. And you draw a distinction between Sigmund Freud and, of all people, Charles Darwin. Uh, That's a distinction well worth examining closely, and I propose we do so right after we pause for these words. And we return to Michael Shermer. Sigmund Freud was given uh, to uh, comparing himself, in fact, to Copernicus and Charles Darwin. Sure. So it's appropriate that you
1: compare Freud and Darwin. Yeah, well, yeah, Freud made that great statement about the three great intellectual pedestal-smashing revolutions in the history of Western thought, Copernicus uh, and uh, Darwin and himself, the three great...
0: (laughs) Copernicus said, we are not at the center of the universe, we revolve around the sun. Darwin said... uh, we are not uniquely created, we are descended from the whole phylogenetic line of other organic beings. And both of those were supposedly injuries to the ego
1: of man. Mm-hmm. And then Freud comes along and says We're just a, we're just a mental animal, just beasts in the brain.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh and subject about us, to our instincts. Everything
0: about us is determined by unconscious right. forces. Right. Mm-hmm. So we don't have the uh, independence of mind that we attribute attributed the free to will. ourselves.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Freud wasn't particularly religious in any traditional way, and that irked people. But but, but mainly the problem here and the distinction to make with him and, and Darwin was was that we still Darwin, uh, reverence Darwin for his good science because his theories have been tested and they have passed the test. Freud's theories, by contrast, have not survived. Isn't psychoanalysis, way. quote, a science? It's not a science. It's what a pseudoscience. It? It's total it's total nonsense, but the problem is it's difficult to test. It has been tested. You know, Hans Eisnick, uh, the British psychologist, mm-hmm. uh, you know, showed through a number of tests that, that um, talking to a friend or doing nothing was as effective as going to psychotherapy. So when we talk about does it work, we have to make a distinction between... The individual who goes to psychotherapy or whatever they're trying—it could be tea leaves or astrologers or whatever—they say, "Well, it works for me." What do I care what you scientists say when you test it? it i got better. Well, well, it may not work as a therapy,
0: but it might still be a, a an accurate theory of mind of the structure of the mind and uh, the nature of the defense yeah, mechanisms, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But
1: even that's so speculative. It's it's really metaphorical. I see Freud more as a literary figure. So do Writing in in metaphor and tropes and, and he has all something else that tools. distinguishes
0: him from Darwin. Uh, Freud lies a lot. Yeah,
1: he he's been caught cheating. Um,
0: his many the of his case Man, histories uh, are. Wolf fan
1: history was uh, largely made up. Uh, fabrication, fabrication. Uh, he was under pressure before the big annual. Uh, Psychoanalytic conference, and uh, he just made up a lot of stuff, and uh, he's been he's been busted for that, and uh, that's not a that's not a good sign in science. <laughs> Can't make up your data. But what then do you make of the fact that there is
0: still a psychoanalytic profession? There are still psychoanalytic institutes where people, usually with MD degrees, come and they train for years uh, on end. But you know they become, go. They one go. One of the big ones is the right here in, in Chicago. Yeah,
1: they go through the therapy themselves. Yeah. And anytime you invest that much effort and time into something. How can you not be committed to it? You, you can't. You, you would never finish the program. So anybody that gets all the way to the end and comes out the, the door the other side has got to be committed to it. And and given the power of the confirmation bias, that is we look for and find confirmatory evidence to support what we already believe, then what psychotherapists are doing is they're finding ways to make what they see in their clients and, and in the therapy sessions and in themselves fit the theory. And, Science can't work that way. We have to somehow yeah. get past the confirmation bias. Well, actually, the, there have been recent developments.
0: after um, in, in recent years, with all the disillusion about what Freud, how Freud really worked and how much of a romancer and a confabulator he was, lots of intelligent people who are working in psychoanalysis sort of acknowledge that. But they say, still, after all, he, inv- he discovered the unconscious. and That's a great yeah. discovery. They tend to forget that uh, Paracelsus, otherwise known as Theophrastus, Bombastus von Hohenheim, uh, <laughs> essentially posits the same thing in yeah. the 16th century, or is sure. it the 50th? Um But um, some very sophisticated psychoanalysts, uh, Lacan in Paris is one, and he's now got many American followers, say essentially the work between the therapist, the psychoanalyst, and the patient isn't really to find the ultimate truth and the ultimate traumas that injured the person and set him on his neurotic course. it is rather to develop a new myth of his life. It doesn't have
1: to be true, but if
0: it suits him better, then we've rendered a service.
1: Yeah, but what if that false myth created for the person includes, say, sexual molestation by his parents when he was a young child? It often does. And because Freudianism is so wrapped around the whole sexual impulse, and now this person goes to their... Parents that are still alive and say, you know, I'm I'm disconnecting uh, with you and you've molested. Now me you're talking the about the recovered life. memory. Yeah, movement, this is dangerous. Uh, okay, so when the therapist says it doesn't matter if it really happened or not, it only matters what he thinks happened. No, it does matter what really happened. It does. That recovered memory
0: movement was a tremendous uh, social. Fad or social panic that really ripped this country. Really, it's for a, a great
1: while. example of a mass hysteria lasts about ten years. Yeah. Uh, in this case, we can thank the lawyers for helping to bring it about. Describe uh, it if about. you would only briefly. Some of our listeners might not know. About it. Okay, so in the early 1980s, <clears throat> excuse me, in psychoanalytic circles in Boston, there became a movement toward um, trying to discern whether uh, these stories that uh, mainly women patients were telling about uh, images they were getting in dreams and so on actually represented something that really happened. And as you know Freud had this debate in in himself and changed his mind a couple of times about whether these childhood fantasies were representing something real or not. He finally decided
0: they did not (laughs) represent (laughs) Right, that's right.
1: But in the 1980s they decided well maybe these do. So, um, once you've got planted in your mind as a therapist that sexual molestation does happen a lot and there 's a certain set of characteristics uh, expressed by their patients, uh, for example, maybe weight loss or weight gain, trouble in relationships, depression overeating undereating, and so on it 's a laundry list of symptoms that uh, that could fit almost anybody
0: sounds like a cold reading again it, it, it okay.
1: is like a cold reading yeah. and and, and so now the person might the, the, the patient might say well no I, I know i wasn't molested when i was a child i had a great relationship with my parents well yes i understand that our other clients who uh, also couldn't remember that they were molested they said the same thing as you and in time it came clear oh really how does that work well look watch this tape read this book check out this literature and slowly over months of of querying with yep. a lot of probing questions that lead to that direction you can you can actually you plan can talk a false people memory. into it
0: Talk, that's right. talks about having these false memories of how daddy diddled me. Right. However, I would I would make one clarification that I'm sure you'll agree with. You say it starts with psychoanalysts. Maybe so, but most of the practitioners who did this stuff were not. That's right. And They were psychiatric to, uh, social
3: workers or that's right. or
0: even or, or, or people with virtually no training at all, no like a week's course or right. something of the that's sort. Right. That's right. Uh, but but they estranged... Uh, I suppose thousands of families they estranged thousands of women from their parents.
1: Oh, I remember when this was happening uh I was still involved in psychology pretty heavily, and I was talking to some folks about this at a conference and, and they were saying things like one half of all women in America have been sexually mm-hmm. molested half and,
0: and you think, well, what was the book that was the Bible for this thing oh by two it women. was
1: uh yes, it was um Oh uh, whatever it was. Yeah, I can't it remember had great influence. But that became the and yeah. that's the book everybody read and and that listed all the symptoms and it was things like if you have a dream in which you there's like a heaviness on your chest ah that heaviness represents your your father, or grandfather, or uncle you know raping you. Uh, colors you know certain re- like red you know you have a red dress or a red blanket in your dream that represents you know the blood of the menses and whatever. So it was always coming back to some sexual thing. The
0: fact is you can talk people into almost anything and sell almost right. anything. It's,
1: it's tragic. Now again, particularly
0: under it, the mantle of science.
1: If it only happens in the therapy room and never leaves, then their argument that well it doesn't really matter if it happened or not. Is okay, but it often does leave the room, and it involves other people and other relationships, mm-hmm. and then it becomes destructive. As I said, the lawyers actually brought this about because a number of women uh, recanted their uh, their recovered memories, declared them false memories, um, reestablished were, the relationship with. There was a the particular the therapist. there was a psychiatrist, there
0: was a psychiatrist, an, an, an MD yeah. who practiced at Rush Presbyterian Saint Luke's Hospital and had his own clinic there, uh, where uh, he was much engaged in this, and he was a full MD, psychiatrist, if not psychoanalytically trained, and he pushed it very hard, and they were sued, some of his former patients and their Mm -hmm. families sued, and there was a multi-million dollar settlement paid to those people. uh, Whether that fellow, um, I know his name, but I'm not mentioning it at the moment, whether he's still on that staff, I don't know. I rather doubt it. I
1: don't think so. No, I don't think so. Um,
0: but that was the beginning of the turnaround. Yes,
1: right, and see, when you hit people up with uh, financial punishment for it, it, it does bring things about rather quickly. Although the satanic panic uh, and, and this whole thing with the McMartin preschool case, why do these things always happen in California? Well, that's how it began, really. <laughs> that was another mass yeah, hysteria yeah. that just ran itself out.
0: You've got a wonderful uh, gadget, uh, in, in essence. You, uh, you call it the knowledge filter, uh-huh. uh, and you... Um, lay it out. This is really the way of detecting or discerning uh, false ideas from likely correct ideas. Uh, And you give, uh, there are some ten separate steps uh, in the application of the knowledge filter and it's a very powerful set of ideas. I want to develop that, uh, but I'm going to ask you to develop it with regard to uh, yet something else in science. I guess you can choose two things in science. One that you think has worked rather well and has a fair amount of confirmation and one that just cannot pass these tests. I'll leave that, the selection of the particular uh, objects to you, but let's examine the application, the nature of the knowledge filter and its application. As we continue with Michael Shermer, drawing from his valuable new book, uh, The Borderlands of Science, Where Sense Meets Nonsense, Oxford University Press, the publishers, first these words. And we return to Michael Shermer. Uh, So... uh, this is really a, a very interesting contribution, which fits and can work in ordinary life, not only at the high levels of science. The knowledge filter. What is it? And then show me how you apply it uh, to a controversy in science.
1: Yeah. Actually, I've been calling this now the baloney detection kit, because we want to know what's what's baloney and what's not. And uh, so let me just take a, a scientific claim uh, that has failed the test. Cold fusion is a good example, 1989, uh, hit on the scene that you can have uh, fusion in a jar and so on. Whatever happened to that? Well, it never passed the test. These two and guys were at the University of Utah. Yeah, Pons really. and Fleischmann at yeah. the University of Utah. They held a, a press conference, and I understand why they did this, because this is potentially quite lucrative, and you want patents and so on, and, and you don't if you go through the slow scientific process, maybe someone steals your idea. Okay, fair enough, but at some point after... 10 or 12 labs try to replicate it and are unable to do so, clearly this is not a real effect. Cold fusion has largely dropped off the radar screen here with a few exceptions in Japan that are funding this. But if you look at a more mainstream uh, debate like in cosmology, whether the steady state theory or the big bang theory was right. When I first started college in 1971, 30 years ago now, I took a course in astronomy, and, and it wasn't clear at that time, although the Big Bang was just starting to pull ahead then. And it has clearly won out over the steady state theory. Why? And the reason is, is because not just accumulation of knowledge, but, but a convergence from different lines of Well, let's of quickly inquiry. review.
0: Uh, most listeners know what the Big Bang cosmological model is. Most of them probably don't know what uh, Fred Hoyle's steady state theory was. What was it?
1: Well, that, that the universe... Uh, just continues in its present state forever, that it really has no beginning and no end. Uh, so Stephen Even talking though the talking universe is universe. expanding. Yeah, well, yes, that's right, but but it's expanding out and there's new stuff being produced. This spontaneous was, creation of matter. This was Hoyle's problem. We could never show yeah. how this could happen. Where, where is this new stuff coming from, you know? Well, he
0: posited it's a spontaneous creation right. of matter. Yeah, 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 how yeah, it happens, but right. obviously it happens. Yeah. The theory required... <laughs> But there you, was no
1: mechanism. Because it,
0: the density of space, the distribution of hydrogen molecules and so on, was about equal yeah. even though uh, in deep space, even though things were moving away from each other.
1: Right. And now, but we see, without the mechanism, it's like Alfred Wegener's theory of the continents drifting. It was never accepted, not because scientists are hidebound and dogmatic, because he never had a mechanism to show how it is that continents can be moved around the planet. Now we have a mechanism, it's, it's more capable of being accepted the Big Bang, we now have mechanisms for how this could, could happen, how these atoms are created. So
0: you have ten steps in the Knowledge Filter or the baloney Detector. We won't review all of them, I suppose, Well, just but a few what highlights. are the main steps? The,
1: the main ones are who is doing the claim, who is making the claim, what, what, is the, what is the source of this claim, what is the quality of the evidence. Uh, has this person made similar outrageous claims? Uh, Thomas Gold at Cornell University is a good example. He's made some spectacular claims. Some of them turn out to be true. Some of them false. He was an associate of. Uh, it's of Sagan, of, yeah, Carl Sagan, yeah, yeah. at Cornell. Uh, but he has this new book out, uh what's well, a couple of years old now, called the Deep Hot Biosphere. And his theory is that oil is not a fossil fuel. Yes. Oil is a byproduct of this deep pop biosphere, these bacteria, bacteria live in the nooks and crannies of the rocks two miles down and, and that oil and natural gas are a byproduct hmm. and, and, and it will have a continuous supply of this, right? Well I talk to my friends at Caltech, the geologists, and say this is utter nonsense. But because it's Thomas Gold at Cornell, well at least we should look into it. <laughs> so in science, like in life, it does matter who you are, but only for a while. <laughs> You know, is poly and so vitamin C at some point it's... To get a hearing. Yeah, to get a hearing. Yeah. But if you don't have proof, if you can't prove it, if you can't test yeah. it, then then. But not made If, if you've made you a fool of
0: yourself it. three or four times earlier.
1: Yeah, then, then you're going to be hurt.
0: So that's one of the below right. detectors. Th- what th- are the other? That's right.
1: Um, the evidence. What is the evidence? Has anyone tried to test that evidence other than the claimant? That is, like with the cold fusion, fine that only Pons and Fleischman knew about this, and they initially tested it and found positive results. That's fine for a start, but mm-hmm. at some point somebody else has to test it. All right. But how does this apply to Big Bang Cosmology? Ah. Well, here we have multiple labs and astronomers and cosmologists all over the world, and believe me, they'd be only too happy. Some graduate student would be only too happy to debunk this and of make course. his name, right? So it's not like these guys, like the creationists think, get together on the weekends and say, okay, now look, we've got to get our story straight here. Yeah, 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 we're going to have this conspiracy. Now I'm going to say 10 billion years old. What are you going to say? Okay. We, and let's, let's stick with the same. It doesn't work that way. You know, these scientists are very competitive. They have huge egos. They would love to debunk each other. But if you don't have the evidence, if you don't have the data, you can't do it.
0: I can testify to somebody who's worked... In an almost borderland area of science, namely social psychology, rather oh, than yeah, hard yeah. psychology, that uh, the bane of your existence always is the bright graduate students at some other university who've taken your theoretical contribution and try to shoot it down yeah. with an
1: experiment that's supposed to disconfirm your findings. That's right. And that's how it works. And uh, don't you think, in a way, that the social sciences are the hard sciences because? uh... the subject matter is so complex they're the hardest to do hardest to do yeah, yeah. it's 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 hard to say anything significant oh, sure. because yeah. there's so many variables
0: <clears throat> but uh, crucial for example in uh... big bang cosmology as i remember it was one very important finding the one uh... achieved by penzius and wilson don't you think
1: Ah, uh, you you talking about the the background radiation yeah, yeah. Right. uh... Uh, again, the 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 bits and pieces that come through from different lines of inquiry, independent of each other, converging to this conclusion that the Big Bang happened, or in case of evolution, it's another great example here, a good story here, that um, when did humans and primates branch off from each other on the evolutionary tree? Mm-hmm. It looks to be about six million years ago. How do we know that? The fossil record is one way, and a and, and, and half a dozen different ways of dating the fossils uh through different geological techniques and uh biochemical techniques but that's not the only one genetic uh, DNA sequence similarities between humans and chimps and gorillas and so on all of that leads to independently the same conclusion and that's how we know it happened we're in
0: the middle of a very important part of the total story and a very central theme in the book the borderlands of science but we pause right now for the usual update on the evening's news from Andrea Darlus and then directly back. And we return directly to Michael Shermer. Uh, in a while, frankly, in about fifteen minutes, we'll be taking your telephone calls. But we're we're opening the lines right now. The number, of course, as ever, five nine one seven two zero zero five nine one seventy two hundred. And for those who are listening at some great distance, listening on the internet, any place in the world. If you want to reach us, the uh, reasonable way to do it is via email. The email address, extension 720, extension 720, as one word, at tribune.com, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com, or 591-7200. You are in mid-course with regard to the differentiation Ah. between uh, Big Bang cosmology and steady-state cosmology, which has long since been put aside.
1: Yeah, and the Big Bang has won. Another interesting debate where you see this effect unfolding is is where did all the races of humans come from? The competing theories over the last 20 years have been the out of Africa hypothesis, which is that every mm-hmm. single person living today came from a single population of humans living in Africa about 100,000 years ago. The alternative hypothesis was the multi-regional mm-hmm. hypothesis that all these different human groups ca- came from independent lines of, of evolutionary sequence from different, uh, spe- different subpopulations. And I- in the last couple years, the out of Africa hypothesis has been winning out because the, of Of a number of different lines of inquiry, DNA sequence similarities, tracking mutations, the most recent one that came out last week in the journal mm. Science was that uh, there are three different sites of mutations on the y chromosome so and, and this is good to test because uh, the Y chromosome in men there's no intermixing uh, in, in, when you with sexual reproduction so it's the the, the DNA sequence stays solid over time and Every single human tested from every mm-hmm. single population around the globe, and there were thousands, uh, ha- have these three mutations. And so it really looks like uh, every single person today came from a small group of humans living about 40 to 90,000 years ago, and and diversified off. What was interesting about this story was they mm-hmm. quoted Vince sarich the anthropologist from UC Berkeley, who's about as opinionated a scientist as you will ever find. And he said he was defending multiregionalism before. He said I was wrong. The data shows there was a complete and total replacement Mm -hmm. of all other human groups, and multiregionalism is wrong. So, you see, it does happen. Scientists do change their mind. They may do so begrudgingly, but if the evidence is there, you have no choice. How
0: does current thought in that realm of science handle the question of um, differences between what uh, we used to, more comfortably than now, call races?
1: Uh, Well, subpopulations or subspecies are basically they avoid it altogether because it's such a politically loaded term. It's interesting that zoologists will happily talk about, you know, races of or sub subspecies of any kind of other organism, but with humans there's there's a lot more at stake. So the Human Genome Project has put this to rest in the sense that it looks like there's virtually no difference between human groups, which is hard to fathom because if you stand a group of different people from around the world together they sure look different mm-hmm. now it's true they interbreed uh, so they're the same species but but the when did the, when did is, they start looking different
0: if the total if the group that is the founding group for the human race know. is at the most only 90,000 years old
1: and maybe even 40,000 years it happened during that t- in the last 40 to 90,000 mm-hmm. years and this is what's truly remarkable about this story is how could that diversity i mean exactly. happen in that shorted period of time think of an Australian aborigine uh, maybe uh, a Swede, well, I would, a native american standing there you think y- you're telling me this happened in 40,000 years I would
0: posit that no it isn't a mere 40 to 90,000 years maybe they're wrong it may be half a million and we may have uh, pay,
1: uh, we may have um, Fossil finds later on which it, established that it, to be it, the it, case. It, it could be. You know, they even have a DNA sequence now from a Neanderthal, and mm-hmm. it doesn't look like we interbred with the Neanderthals. So, another nasty part of the human history here is the question what happened to all those other human How groups? we
0: killed the Neanderthal? Where'd they go? How Homo sapiens if killed them. If we didn't
1: interbreed with them, there's only one other alternative. We killed mm-hmm. them, or they, they, they went extinct for some reason. The place where the they lived most
0: closely, if not in harmony, at least in proximity, was Israel.
1: Yes, right. Israel looks to be a corridor of transition between Africa yeah, and Europe. Curious.
0: And we're late for some commercials, of course. So we'll pause for those and then uh, on with a few other things. One particular thing. You have a whole chapter about a man who was a, a friend of both, uh, of, uh, both you and, and, uh, and I, uh, and that's Carl Sagan. Uh, who was often on this radio program. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm going to play a clip of Carl Great. from this program. But I want you to develop, if you would, uh, what you do in that chapter. Because you use Carl as a case study of the nature of science and of the scientist. We return directly to Michael Shermer. In a while, on to your calls on 591-7200. If you want to pose a question or offer a thought, now's is uh, the time for you to give us a call, 591 7200, first these words. It it surprised me that you had a whole chapter in your book, Michael Shermer, about Carl Sagan. Yes,
1: the exquisite balance, I call it. Well, Carl, I think, embodied the right balance between being open-minded enough to accept radical new ideas, but not so open-minded that your brains fall out. And I used the SETI... And ufology contrast as an example of this. Carl was very skeptical of UFOs and alien abductions. Didn't believe any of that. Yet he was a a huge proponent of the idea that there are extraterrestrial intelligences somewhere out there in the cosmos. They haven't come here, but we should search for radio signals. Now, neither one of these groups of of people interested in the subject has uh, evidence. They don't have a subject. We've never found. Any crashed UFOs, we've never detected any alien signals. So why is it uh, someone like Carl would believe one and not the other, although believe is not quite the right word, but he certainly supported one not the other? And the answer is, is the kind of approach taken to the subject. And, uh, again, with the SETI people, it's mostly astronomers, mathematicians, physicists. They're actually doing real science, looking for signals. There's a plausibility it could happen. With ufologists, it's mostly people on the fringe. They're... You know, not credentialed and so on. That's that's not to say that. But don't you know
0: about Roswell and all the <laughs> well, all the secret
1: holdings in that great. Yeah, but all this depends so much on conspiracy thinking and 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 hypnotic regression of memories of being abducted and all these fuzzy psychological things. Mm. And Carl recognized in his his last book was Demon Haunted World, 1996. Yeah. but he six did together with guys. his wife
0: Andreen.
1: Andreen, yes, and um, you know she's still she's still working uh, in his legacy of science education, but. Um, there we recognize the very human element in the mm-hmm. alien abduction u f o phenomena uh, uh illusions and and perceptual you know misperceptions and
0: the man, of course, had something else as well which is rare in scientists an ability. Not popularize isn't quite the wrong word, but to educate, communicate, and to make, and educate. communicate, make yeah. science exciting. It's hard to
1: do. It's hard to do. It, it's really disturbing that scientists, this is even hmm. called the Sagan effect, that allegedly the more you popularize science, the less real science you do. It's very disturbing that you're punished for this because, in fact, it's harder to do. Uh, since I've been publishing Skeptic magazine 10 years now, uh, the worst articles I get are from scientists. They can't write. It's pathetic. Uh-huh. It's embarrassing, these articles I get. Yes, they can do the research, but if you can't communicate the research, what's the point of doing it? And some scientists,
0: uh, goaded by envy or whatever, uh, tended to minimize the scientific accomplishments. Yeah, there there Carlson, is a jealousy and, effect, of Though, in fact, yeah. he made some very significant contributions to uh, planetary yeah.
1: science. That's right. In fact, in this chapter in the Borderlands... Uh, on Carl. I actually did a content analysis of everything he ever Mm -hmm. wrote. got his whole CV. got his articles, books, and so on. He clearly made important scientific contributions. He was averaging a peer-reviewed scientific publication a month for his entire career, even after Cosmos aired in 1980 when he became a megastar, and he was bombarded with interviews and so on. He still continued doing real research. One of
0: the um, great uh, complaints of some people at the University of Chicago, where I've been an indentured servant for a long, long time, (laughs) is that he was never given an honorary degree by the University of Chicago. Interesting. And he should have been.
1: And why is that? Well, yeah, that's the question. <laughs> there, you, there you have it. Let's hear him. Okay. You say
2: that man is a wanderer, and you say there is a hell of a good universe and also a necessary
0: universe next door. Let's get ready to go because we are going. You predict a good deal about what the nature of our venture out into the universe will be.
2: Yeah, the, the basic argument there is. Um, is, uh, we, we've talked about this before, I wouldn't say man, I'd say humans, um, because it is in both both genders. But we, we are wanderers. I mean, you humans, our species is a few hundred thousand years old. Our genus, the genus Homo, uh, the human family, if you like, is a few million years old. We've had civilization only for the last eight or ten thousand years. So uh, we're wanderers who have... Uh, Uh, hit upon a brief, sedentary hiatus. And uh, the the wish to wander, to follow the game, uh, has to be built powerfully in us, because millions of years is enough for genetic propensities to be established. And so thinking in Darwinian terms, we are naturally wanderers, because wandering was the trait in us that nature selected and it's selected it because the
0: wanderers were the ones who survived.
2: That's right. Who followed the game, who, uh, who came to the, the trees when they were in fruit or nuts. And, and uh, that was how, we, you know, before agriculture, that's how we lived. And uh, there's, you know, words like wanderlust, mm-hmm. which uh, which conveys something of that. But the earth is all explored. There's nowhere else to, to go. And we're, we're uh, sedentary and don't go anywhere. And a lot of people feel... I think a lot of people, maybe more men than women, feel it as a kind of uh, itch uh, vague discontent about about not not and and that's why sports and war and occasional exploration and adventure really uh, are uh, are very attractive. but well, it shows in our ordinary lives as well we are we still remain wanderers I'm sure that you who are much in demand i know around the country and around the world, if you have two invitations. One, for a very interesting conference in Cleveland. And another, for a possibly less interesting conference in Bucharest, you'll probably go to Bucharest. Well, it depends whether I've been to Cleveland before. But, but uh, yes, of course, you're right. Uh, it, it affects all aspects of our, of our being. And the Earth is all explored, except for the ocean bottom. There's no place to go. But at just this moment, exactly the t- technology that has permitted us to explore the Earth now is on the verge of permitting us to go to other worlds. We live, as your quote from E.E. Cummings says, in a hell of a solar system. It is glorious, magnificent, with uh, nine planets, uh, some 70-odd, very different, very interesting moons, tens of thousands of asteroids, trillions of comets, and uh, no two of them exactly alike with all sorts of things about origins to learn from them origin of our world origin of ourselves and some of them we can foresee the ability for us to live on them and have self-sustaining communities on the french
0: when they were investigating or rather colonizing or at least examining north america in the 17 in the early 17th century perhaps even earlier they the men that they sent up and down the rivers of middle America and Canada and so on, were known as les voyageurs, the voyagers. And it seems to me that we've had voyageurs uh, certainly in our time. Most of it, we haven't yet settled any other planet, but surely in our time, and you've had a good deal to do with the construction of this aspect of our time, we've sent voyageurs out into space. They've landed on at least one other significant stellar body,
2: so to speak. Uh, or, planetary body, namely the moon, and uh, you have sent, you've been involved with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory people in sending explorers of various kinds, mechanical explorers, but, but uh, loaded with equipment designed by human beings to explore all the planets of the solar system. So, we are already launched on our extraterrestrial extension, are we not? You're completely right, and in fact, two of the most successful robotic explorers were called Voyager Voyager, Voyager 1 Reed. and Voyager yeah. 2, and in fact it is Voyager 1 that took the distant picture of the Earth as a yeah. pale blue dot, which gives the book uh, its title, Pale Blue And I learned from this book, I didn't know the story behind this, that it was you who sort of pressed to get the valuable time of the camera and of the uh, total equipment so as to take that picture. Some of the other people, particularly the government people, didn't want to bother utilizing their equipment to merely take a picture of the Earth.
1: Wow, Ad Astra, as Sagan said. You know, yeah. he wrote an essay called Ad Astra, To the Stars, when he was 16, mm, yeah. talking about this. He had a real passion for that. And uh, boy, you really sense that in his voice and in his intonation of how he talks about this, the love of, of exploration and science. And that's what, that's what's so beautiful about science. Is it's it's mm. open-ended and, and there are no final answers. And uh, when I was a religious person, I was very young, uh, just uh, late teens, early twenties. Um, there was a certain fulfillment there mm-hmm. that was never matched. Uh, I mean, that was that 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 could never match what I discovered in science. And it is that that wonderlust, that that always exploring. It's not the finding of the final answers. It's the trying to get there. That's you so say, rewarding. You say about when science.
0: you were a religious person, are you uh, an actively irreligious person? No,
1: I'm not. I just don't really think about it that much, except to the extent that I study religion as as a social scientist, part of my job mm-hmm. with skeptics, but, but but, that's really sort of the anthropology religion, the psychology religion, legitimate mm-hmm. scientific field. But no, uh, skeptics should not be, in my opinion, anti-religious. I think it doesn't serve us any good. And In, in any case, it, it, if your goal was to convert mm-hmm. religious people to being non-religious, uh, attacking them wouldn't be the strategy yeah. anyway. As
0: I am winding down and doing less teaching than I used to do, uh, one of the two courses I still do is the psychology of religion. I love to do that course and well so, it's
1: uh, it's a great field, yeah
0: uh, we are late for some commercials or at least we're due for some commercials, and then we should be getting onto the phones oh yes five nine one seven two double zero the number and uh, if you want to email us uh, because you're listening to us on the internet from far away. Or for other reasons, you'd rather come through via email instead of the phone. The email address, extension720 at tribune.com or 591-7200. One or two lines are still available. If you want to get in, or move quickly. We'll be right on to your calls and/or emails after this. And we will go directly to the phones. 591-7200 is the number. Here is the first caller. Hello, you're on the air.
2: Good evening. Another great show, as always, Mike. Thank you, sir. Um, if you would be so kind, I would like your, uh, the honored guest. You touched on this a little earlier, but uh, your, can science and religion ever reconcile each other from a perspective of many of us, uh, I myself am a man in my 50s, who have come to a very peaceful place, spiritually speaking, whereas I went the other way. I spent many, many years uh, trying to figure out everything from A to Z, and when I started getting real comfortable was when I did get to that spiritual place. Is there a reconciliation between yeah, know science and religion, or are they two diametrically opposed?
1: I went through the same thing. In fact, I wrote a whole book about it, and that's how I resolved it. The book is called How We Believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, Basically, there is no conflict unless you try to force... Certain religious tenets uh, into the box of science, so fundamentalists who insist that the book of Genesis be read literally as a book of science rather than a a, a myth uh, and, and all cultures have creation myths, and that was our creation myth uh, um, you know and you insist that the earth is only four thousand or six thousand years old it 's simply impossible to reconcile that with the scientific evidence, <clears throat> but most deeply religious people. Uh, don't and the problem is we don't hear from them. They're just quiet about their religion. It's the, it's the creationists and and some extreme fundamentalists who insist that it must be um, that the earth must be four thousand years old or whatever. And they're the ones that are uh, claiming that there's a conflict. And and to be fair, on the other side, there's a lot of militant atheists who also insist that there's a conflict. And you have to pick one of the. There other. is
0: one great embarrassment or one great unanswerable question that confronts science, particularly astrophysics and cosmological science, and so on, and which uh, by virtue of its unanswerability sort of requires that one move in the direction of some notion of a transcendent force. And that question is, as put in modern philosophy, why is there anything Anything rather rather than than nothing,
1: nothing? Yes, right. Well, that is an insoluble question. It cannot be answered. For whatever reason, we have a big enough brain to ask that question, but not big enough to answer it. It's it's like, can God make a mountain big enough that he can't lift it? Well, if he's God, he could. Well, no, wait a minute. If he's God, he couldn't. These are paradoxes. These are linguistic twists and turns we get ourselves into, I think, that are unanswerable. And now you're
0: now you're turning Wittgensteinian, I think. <laughs> yeah. right.
1: Sir, we thank you for the
0: call, and we'll go quickly to another 591-7200. Good evening. Hello, are you there? Yes. Yeah. Yes, sir.
2: Uh, I've long wondered what the skeptics take is on a phenomenon called xenoglossy, whereby someone... Uh, start speaking in a language that they've never uh, encountered before, have absolutely no familiarity yeah. with, a four-year-old suddenly breaking out into fluent Aramaic, for example.
0: How do we know it's fluent Aramaic?
2: Uh, I just drew an example
1: for you. <laughs> that, well, that's actually a good, good example, Milt, because how do we know? Uh, you know, if there's no one around that actually speaks that language, if there isn't mm. somebody there to translate it, to, is it really? Uh, an actual language or is it just gibberish that that sounds like a foreign language because we don't know it and often these stories get told and retold and exaggerated Um, sure it's possible that someone can pick up some uh, language skills here and there, even perhaps inadvertently, not, not that they can actually speak it, but that they can throw the terms out in, in some sort of r- uh, reverie state. And, and I've seen this before. It is very dramatic to see. Right, and then someone it says, uh, that means uh, Jesus loves you, and yeah. uh, you know, w- w- we're all going There have been
0: forever. some studies by linguists uh, as the actual shape of glossolalia, it's often called also, and you tend to get certain kinds of syllable formations mm-hmm. uh, which are characteristic at least of Americans, yes, who have this experience. Right,
1: yeah. Now, th- there's never been any formal study showing that, that th- these people can actually speak a foreign language. It's just gibberish.
2: Okay, you satisfied my curiosity.
1: Okay. We thank you, sir.
0: But uh, wishing will make it so, and believing will make it so.
1: It's true. Humans are storytelling, pattern-seeking animals, and yeah. we are very gullible. And quickly to
0: another caller, and this is an interesting one, interesting to me indeed. Hello, you're on the air.
2: Hello. Yes, I was wondering if the um, uh, speaker had anything to say about the scientific basis for near death experience.
1: Ah. Yeah, I have a whole chapter on that in my book, Why People Believe Weird Things, because it is one of those interesting problems that science Mm. simply must address because so many people have had these experiences floating out of the body, passing through a tunnel, white light at the end of the tunnel and so on, seeing your loved ones on the other side. And uh, we now think we have a pretty good explanation for this because you can replicate it in laboratories under different Mm. conditions. Clearly, uh, hallucinogenic drugs can trigger it, but also um, accelerating somebody in one of these um, uh, machines that they use to test pilots, where they they flip you around over and over and over very quickly. Uh, this causes a deprivation of oxygen to the brain, and that seems to trigger these near-death experiences. These pilots have have experienced this. You can do it with um, uh, electromagnets. You bombard the left and right temporal lobes of the brain with electromagnetic fields, certain patterns trigger feelings of uh, floating out of the body. Uh, It looks like now there is some research on the parietal lobes which are just above your ears and to the back that under deep meditation or prayer there is a feeling of oneness with the cosmos and in EEG readings and PET scans of people doing these prayer and meditation, (coughs) we have the effect that the parietal lobe shuts down. What does the parietal lobe do? It keeps track of the difference between self and non-self, so that if it's suppressed, it's hard for you to tell, it's hard for your brain to tell the difference between you and the cosmos. So when someone says, I felt that one with the universe, perhaps they really meant it in the sense of a brain function.
0: Hmm. Thank you. We thank you, sir. Um, An interesting recent development, as I'm sure you know, is that they've taken people who who have mystical experiences, mystical illumination, one a group of nuns, and I forget what the other group was, and they've done yeah uh, brain scan examinations. And they, Buddhist
1: monks, it was. Buddhist yes. monks.
0: And they think they find uh, a pattern. I'm not sure. Yeah,
1: that's... Th- no, this was the the parietal lobe study, uh, yeah. uh, this, this book that just came out reporting this, and uh, it, it is interesting research. I don't think it explains why most people believe in God. I mean, 90 to 95 percent of Americans profess a belief in God. I don't think most of them have had any kind of uh, striking. Yeah. Uh, experience of hearing the voice of God or feeling at one with the universe. I think most people believe because their parents believe, they were raised to believe, they're in a culture that's very religious, um, they're influenced by yeah. peer groups. But so some on. have gone through conversion experience Yeah,
0: have in fact had something like a mystical encounter.
1: Yeah, and and that, I think, the explanation must come from the brain. All experiences come from the brain. Or else, another working hypothesis, it comes from uh, the intervention
0: of the transcendent force into their life. Into the brain. <laughs> into the Maybe. Brain. <laughs> how it's would you, how would the, you test it? It's mediated that? through the brain. How would well, you test that? That's as far as we can go yeah, with it, yeah, I think. Right. I want to read you an interesting email that's come in. Uh, good show as usual. Accept that. Dot, dot, dot. And then here we go. I wonder whether this fellow is or is not a psychoanalyst, um, because this is what this is about. He goes on to say, Neither Freud nor his followers ever claimed that psychoanalysis was scientific, The psychoanalyst has no laboratory or instruments. The analyst cannot weigh or count his or her findings. He is no scientist and fully realizes that what cannot be quantified cannot be termed, quote, scientific. No argument here. You and your guests seem to suggest that Freud and his followers and admirers want to call psychoanalysis science. That's simply untrue, almost laughable. Please, just calmly consider, the analyst does gain extremely important insight into the nature of mental illness through exploring the dreams, fantasies, associations, and hidden desires and fears and anxieties of his patients. He does learn something of great importance. In the genial words of noted sociologist Sidney Hood, uh, so psychoanalysis ain't scientific, but you'd better believe it is true, uh, capitalized. Thanks for taking this seriously.
1: Okay, well fair enough, but how do we know if it's true if there's no way to get it past mm-hmm. the individual experience of a single therapist in a clinical um, uh, setting, in in other words, the first part of the statement contradicts the second part of the statement. <clears throat> how how can I possibly take it seriously if it's just your opinion? What's the difference between your opinion and that of the astrologer that says, "Well, look, yeah. my clients they they tell me that they they're doing much better."
0: One of the most falsifiable statements by this interesting uh, uh, listener is where he says, "You and your guests seem to suggest." that Freud and his followers and admirers want to call psychoanalysis science. That's simply untrue. Now, Freud, of course,
1: oh they constantly, did. Oh, absolutely. constantly yeah, carried on was, about uh, a new he, science. He, he thought created. he should win the Nobel Prize in science for his new yeah. science, and he compared himself to Copernicus and Darwin. Uh, he consciously and overtly really. c- constructed the whole psychoanalytic movement to be a new science. Though I'm sure... Uh, he was a medical doctor. He was a, he yes. started off as a
0: scientist. He started off with research on cocaine. Yeah, that's research. right.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, but uh, modern psychoanalysts, I'm sure, would be a little bit more embarrassed by, uh, would not claim for themselves, we're doing hard science.
1: No, I, I, now maybe he's speaking for himself, that's fine, at yeah. least it's an honest statement, and, and maybe most psychoanalysts today would not claim to be doing science, and that's fine.
0: With regard to dreams, it's interesting, we've got some researchers who think they can demonstrate that dreams have very little to do with unconscious wishes. Yes. There well. There's a fellow at Harvard who's done a good deal
1: of work. Are you talking about John Mack? No, uh, no, no. I don't mean, no, no, I don't oh, I don't mean John Mack.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm just blocking on the fellow's name.
1: Right. So how do we get to the unconscious? You know, That's another one of those fuzzy borderland areas. Well, test. is there an unconscious? Yeah, well, there's something going That's on. That's a
0: cultural uh, truism now that we live with, and Freud handed it to us. Right. He gave but, us a lot
1: of metaphors, but uh, yeah. how many of those are real? Exactly.
0: Um, We will pause for our last round of commercials, and then we'll be in the clear until 11 o'clock. There's some space available on the board, again, if you've been trying to reach us and hitting a busy signal. Try right now, once again, 591-7200, 591-7200, and we return after this. Uh, With a quick reminder, which we usually do on uh, Thursday and Friday nights, that uh, you will certainly want to get your hands on this Sunday's Chicago Tribune. Particularly, uh, I want to call your attention to the excellent uh, book th- books section of the Tribune. I've been looking at um, the one for this Sunday. We get it a few days early, and it has some excellent reviews. This issue is strongly focused on contemporary fiction. There is also, of course, a full page, very often two pages, of literary events coming up in Chicago, and there you will always find listings for the next week on extension 720. Of course, that's also available to you on our own website, where you have the full month for Extension 720. That website is wgnradio.com, and then you link to Extension 720, five nine one seven two double zero, the number, and we'll go to the next caller. Hello. Hi. Yes, sir. Uh,
3: Milt, uh, nice to talk to you. I'm 52 years old, a longtime listener. <laughs> uh, I'm a, a former TM teacher, and I have a comment and a quick question. Uh, my comment is I sort of resent the fact that Deepak Chopra has been able to get away and build this big empire on uh, basically the ideas of Maharishi. That's my comment. My question is how Maharishi
0: Mahesh Yogi, Yogi yes. is the founder of the TM the movement. The TM movement,
3: a yes, word. and uh, Deepak was a, was a protege or a, a student or whatever of Maharishi's for a long time. And sort of split away. I don't know how that happened. I think
0: a giggle on both their houses,
3: <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> and what the circumstances were, but he's made a you know a, a pot full of money basically using somebody else's ideas. Uh, so well, that, Baharishi
0: I, hasn't done too badly for himself either, has well, he?
3: Well, well, he hasn't. But as he says, uh, you know, a monk doesn't have pockets. So <laughs> my question is, uh, how has the TM movement, with all of the development and building and uh, yogic flying and all of this stuff. I mean, they've got uh, buildings and ashrams and centers all over the world. How have they been able to avoid the scrutiny of the uh, quote-unquote skeptic. I'm, I'm curious because... Uh, I doubt that they
1: have. No, they, they haven't. In fact, uh, we've done quite a bit in Skeptic Magazine on uh, transcendental meditation. It's been tested. You know, they make these claims that if you get the square root of 1% of the world's population <laughs> to meditate at the same time, crime rates will drop. Well, you can measure this, and it's not true. It's absolutely false.
3: I hear you
0: laughing, sir. Uh, are you then somebody who's now disabused of the TM faith?
3: Well, I, I sort of am, but what what intrigues me is because, you know, I've been, as I say, I, I was involved back in the uh, mid-'70s. But what intrigues me about it is, is that it, 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 I get these mailings occasionally, uh, and, well, I should say fairly frequently because I must be on a mailing list somewhere, uh, and I look and I see all of this building and development and all this stuff that's happening, and I think to myself, how can this be? Um, a sort of legitimate thing like this without um, and and how is it managed to avoid the scrutiny in the sort of popular press because you know that uh, oh, well,
1: part of it is that this is America and we have 10,000 religious faiths running around doing whatever <laughs> they want. This is a free society.
3: Yeah, I, I I guess so. I I just uh, I'm waiting for the big expose, and I don't I I just haven't seen it coming. I mean, I, well,
1: and we've also tested the yogic flying. They can't fly. They just bounce. <laughs> right? They bounce. They bounce.
0: <laughs>
3: it's
1: not flying. How
0: well, do you? It's about how, time. how do you account for your own earlier involvement?
3: Um. Well, I'm. I guess I'm a seeker. I You know, I I uh, uh, William Goldman wrote a book a, a long time ago about the TM movement and. He he was involved with TM at one point, and earlier on in his life, he was involved with the communist movement. And um, now isn't that
1: interesting? You see how that that works, where people go from one faith to another, a type of ideology, a belief of some kind. Humans seem to have a need right. to belong. We are a social hierarchical primate species. We like to belong to communities and groups right. that uh, that reinforce what we want to believe, and that we pick up ideas from them and you know that's why there there are literally uh, ten thousand different uh, religions in the world today mm-hmm. uh, people belong and like to belong even those who have no belief in God at all belong <laughs> to all kinds of humanist and secular organizations the Unitarians and the Universalists and so on they well, don't believe in God yeah. at all but they like they like this idea of meeting on Sunday mornings at, right. at a place that doesn't look like a church but they have candles and stained glass windows and there Incense is that, and that and all believe. that
3: stuff. yep You know i agree with all you know you're right there but when you start talking about flying like yogic flying i mean that's what did it for me you know uh, when i started with the tm movement it was a scientific technique you know the whole approach was to sell this thing on the basis of science and then at some point it went sort of sideways and, and and this yogic flying thing just did me in and i you know, uh, to this day, you know, it's been maybe 20 years since I've been away from it, although I still, you know, I still watch it and I, you know, basically because of these mailings and some other things, I have some other friends that are still involved. You know, I'm still waiting for somebody to, you know, rise right up and You know fly off i haven't seen that
0: well you've never seen mary
3: poppins
0: (laughs) (laughs) not coming over chicago i
3: think that's probably a better bet isn't it
0: yeah thank (laughs) you sir for the call thank you glad to have heard from you 591 7200 you are on the air good evening
2: yes thank you dr rosenberg uh i'm a licensed psychologist and a retired college professor And one of the uh, what I've been missing here is uh, that you haven't mentioned the criteria for science. It has to be observable and measurable.
1: Well, that's right. And of course, if you can't quantify it and count it and measure it, that's part of it. Uh, There's more to science than that, but certainly that's a big drawback when it comes to testing psychological therapies, uh, although you can certainly measure results, even if it's only self-report data. And and as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, the British psychologist Hans Isink attempted to test these things, and he found... That psychotherapies, not not just psychoanalysis of Freud, but all these psychotherapies uh, are no better than just talking to your friend uh, or doing nothing. Just time alone uh, will will have an effect uh, any kind of change it 's like diets it doesn 't really matter which diet you go on the, the point is to go on the diet the go on part is the important part it's it 's taking action that that causes change and mm-hmm. and that 's in, in effect what 's going on with these psychotherapies. People say, well, it worked for me. Uh, it, you know maybe it 's the twenty seventh thing they 've tried you just don 't know, and it may just be the trying is what they 're getting value out of it
2: right, but but as I said, they need to come back to the original criterion for science observable and measurable
1: well of course <laughs> and and you know so the earlier earlier caller via email said uh, it isn 't science okay, well fair enough mm-hmm. but but doesn 't that concern shouldn 't that concern us that therapies that are being recommended by the APA for people to try, there should be some basis for the recommendation, and then you're back to what you just said: you have to have some measurable criteria by which you're making the recommendation. You you said that you have been a professor of psychology. Yes.
0: Uh, in clinical psychology, particularly. Uh,
2: both both the clinical and social. Really. Yes.
0: May I ask where?
2: Um, at Rock Rock Valley College in mm-hmm. Rockford, Illinois. Oh yes. Yeah. I. I was
0: essentially a, uh, a counselor there. Uh huh. We thank you very much for the call, sir. Yes, you're very welcome. Thank you. Good night. night. Uh, there are now a number of uh, positions available on the board, so if you have been trying to reach us, uh, do certainly call again. And if you suddenly have the impulse, now is the time to act upon it. 591 7200 is the number. 591 7200, and those who call quickly will undoubtedly. Uh, at least a number of them, will undoubtedly get through. Uh, Let me go to another email, Michael. Um, Here's an interesting one. Um, A comment and a question. Two books everyone should read are Discovery of Witchcraft by Reginald Scott, which was published in 1581 Mm -hmm. and involves a humorous systematic debunking of the notion of witchcraft and Strong Poison by Dorothy Sayers, in which one of uh, Whimsey's assistants, that's Lord Peter Whimsey, uh, in which one of Whimsy's assistants uses faked psychic powers to bamboozle people into giving her important documents. The question is, why are intelligent people so susceptible to various kinds of mystification? I'm thinking of Conan Doyle's spiritualism, John Locke and Isaac Newton's ventures into astrology, and the thousands of academic and intellectual women in this country who went in for therapy, and intellectual men as well, I'm sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I wrote this book, Why mm-hmm. People Believe Weird Things, and the hard question is why smart people believe weird things. And the answer is in part because the smarter you are, the better you are you mm-hmm better able you are to defend rationally, to rationalize the beliefs you already hold and beliefs that you came to for non-intellectual smart reasons. That is, most of us come to most of our beliefs most of the time through a, a whole concatenation of social factors, psychological variables, upbringing, parents and so on that have nothing to do with you know logic and reason and evidence. But then because we live in the age of science and we're educated and told that you have to have evidence and proof. Uh, then we go about justifying our beliefs with anything we can find. Again, that's called the confirmation bias I mentioned earlier. Um, in my book How We Believe on God, I showed that um, almost everybody justifies their own belief in God with a set of rational arguments, the good design of the universe and the complexity of life, and so on. But when you ask them why do you think other people believe in God, they say, well, because they were raised to believe, or they, or they, they have a fear of death, or, or, or whatever. They give emotional reasons. So we have this disconnect for. Uh, of justification for why we believe and why we recognize other people believe.
0: You've had some uh, fascinating adventures uh, in your editorship of uh, Skeptic Magazine. Uh, And I mean adventures literally. You've gone off into the world Uh and participated in various strange undertakings, talked to some very uh, puzzling people. One of them, and this led to a it was a major article or series of articles in Skeptic Magazine. And then I think you turned it into a book, didn't you? Concerned a Holocaust denial, oh, yes. which doesn't sound yes. as if it's in the same realm as... Uh, what if pseudo-history is
1: like pseudo-science? Well, it turns out that they're headquartered in Southern California. To be
0: sure, they're near you out there.
1: And isn't it odd that so many of these weird things are out there? <laughs> Maybe it's the thrust faults of the earthquakes, I don't know. But anyway, so I actually went to get to know them. I wanted to, to, to know why people believe weird things. You actually have to go meet them and, and find out what's going on with them. And it uh, turns out, indeed, they actually really do believe the Holocaust didn't happen. Well, sort of. They say it's highly exaggerated. Someone like David Irving would say, "Okay, it wasn't six million, it was one or two million that were killed. And
0: they died of disease more. Disease,
1: overwork, starvation, war is hell, bad things happen few renegade SS guards, yes, ok, maybe a few experimental gassing, something like this. But certainly no concerted effort on the part of the Nazi regime. And Hitler never knew about it. And, and Hitler never signed any documents, he may have heard some rumors, uh, Himmler certainly squelched uh, a few of these uh, renegade SS uh, squads from uh, abusing the Jews. But, but 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 this is war and bad things happen during war. So all this has been greatly exaggerated. The Jews have used the Holocaust as a moral leverage against non-Jews and against the uh, uh, Arab states and so on and so forth. That's and, the line. That's yeah. the line. Yep, that's it. And uh, so the question is, how how do you counter that? Well, you counter it point by point, which I do in this my book, denying history, and show that, for example, we know that gas chambers were used. They deny that. We know that the, we have eyewitness accounts, not only by. By by prisoners who were there, but by guards who said, "Yeah, this is what we did." By the Nazi doctors who were who didn't want to participate, but they were forced to go in and actually do autopsies and and and, uh, and, and instruct the guards on how to properly uh, give the gas without themselves getting poisoned and so on. The commandant confessed to it. We actually have aerial photographs showing the gas chamber with the hole, the induction holes on the roof. We sh- we have aerial photographs of prisoners being marched into the gas chambers and and so we piece it together the same way we know but evolution happened through this convergence of evidence.
0: We also have demographic evidence. If Before you, the war, there account, was 9
1: million Jews. Yeah. After the war, 3 million Jews. Where'd they all go? Yeah. They have answers to these things. All oh, those 6 million there. Yes, a few died, but but they're in Siberia. They're in Peoria. They're in New York. They're in West L.A. You know, They're there. Uh, so they have answer to these questions. You actually have to know something about their specific claims to counter them. But in time, it's easy to debunk them. And what's interesting is the psychology of what they're doing, you know, why do they do this? And the answer is a lot of them are anti-Semitic, it's true. Uh, but 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 even more than that, they like tweaking people, they like disturbing things, they like, David Irving likes a good fight, right? I mean, he on his webpage during this big trial in England for libel, he sued Deborah Lipstadt for libeling, but on his webpage he makes it sound like he's the victim of this cruel legal system. Well, Mr. Irving, you're the one who filed suit, you know. so. They like this idea of victimhood, that we're being unfairly picked on, it's just a free speech issue, and so on. And when I studied them, I found that they were almost exactly like the creationists that we studied through skeptic. and it was almost like they went to the same school of debate. Quote your opponent out of context. Quote your opponent to make it sound like he actually supports your position. Bring up the free speech and how you're being squelched, and and so on.
0: You are trained both as an experimental psychologist, that was your master's degree, I believe, and then as an historian of science, that's your doctorate. Yes. Um, by now you've learned that human confabulatory capability and human irrationality is, in a way, uh, not truly masterable.
1: <laughs> it's disturbing or, that we can fool ourselves so easily. And, of course, I ask myself this. It, it, it
0: persists as a quality of, of the human mind it, and the yeah. human spirit, just as rationality and science... Also testified to that, this, high
1: cognitive capacity. This whole recovered memory movement and the satanic abuse and uh, and all that, this taught us valuable lessons. We learned a lot about social movements, mass hysterias, faulty memory, confabulation, false memory. A, a lot of good science came out of this very bad social movement. It's a. Uh, that's one of the things we do at Skeptic, is to... The reason we study this stuff is not just to debunk it, but to understand why it is people believe it.
0: Say something about uh, Skeptic, the magazine, and about the Skeptic Society. Oh, well,
1: uh, the first thing you should know is go to the web page, www.skeptic.com. You can subscribe to the journal, join the organization. Uh, all my books are there, The Borderlands of Science, the new book. Uh, what we try to do at Skeptic is... Um, Provide a couple things. We provide explanations for people. Like all your callers tonight have been asking, what about this? What about that? That's what we do. Go to the web page com You'll find a lot of explanations. A whole article on this guy John Edward, who talks to the dead. He's a big star on Sci-Fi Channel. About to go to CBS. It's a big thing. He's on Larry King Live mm-hmm. and so on. We are there to say, look, here's what's really going on, because the general media with Few exceptions, like your show, Milt, uh, don't address these things from a skeptical perspective. They feed into the belief systems, and so that's what we're here for.
0: We'll work in one or two more quick calls. 591-7200 is the number. You are next on the air. Good evening.
4: Hello. Yes, thank ma'am. you for a great show. Mm-hmm. Everything that you're saying tonight, your guest, is uh, ringing really true. I do have a question.
0: Please uh, go ahead.
4: Okay. <laughs> Um, I listen to it every night, Melton, I love it. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> if your guest said the one part of the brain separates us from everything else, is that correct?
1: Yeah. there's a the, the parietal lobes, one of their functions appears to be to discriminate between self and non-self. For example, patients that have damaged the parietal lobes have a hard time walking through a room that has a lot of furniture. They bump into it. They literally can't tell the difference between their body and non-body things.
4: Then does that... Um, well, support is the only word I can think of. Those who say we truly, truly are, everything is one. <laughs> you know, like Three Dog Night said, everything's uh-huh. everything.
1: Yeah, it's like um, uh, this idea of feeling one with the cosmos. The only way that could happen, since all experience comes from the brain, is if the brain. Is shut down in some way. Part of it is shut down. That's unable to discriminate between self and non-self, so that you do feel at one. And that's maybe what prayer and meditation does. But I mean,
4: I mean, would that be true physically? I mean, would that is that what
1: true as in? Well, the problem is, what do you mean by true? In the brain. Yeah. Go
4: ahead.
1: In the brain, it's true. Ah. Okay. But what does that mean? Look, all experience comes from the brain. It has to be. Where else could it come from?
4: Uh huh.
1: And the great
0: question, of course, that persists is um, is there any external, and to use the term I used before, transcendent force which somehow reaches us? Hmm. And if it reaches us, it reaches us, of course, through uh, neuro, neurochemical mediation.
1: God is mediating the parietal lobe or the temporal lobes? Yeah, maybe. That sounds more like a mythic theme that comes up over and over. Well, through,
0: it's an untestable hypothesis, that, is what right, it that's is. That's right. And it, what can we
1: do with that? It's in a
0: non falsifiable right. hypothesis. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that it's a false hypothesis. That's right.
1: It just means it's not science. It can't be tested. Yeah. Which also points up then the limits of science. As such. It, it is limited. It, li- it has specific rules. Don't think it, of science as it's a, body a way of knowing, knowledge. but it's not it's a, a way of knowing just just a everything. a way of knowing, right. About the physical material world, the yeah. best we can do. And that's why the Borderlands of Science is so interesting, because in this fuzzy psychological area, so many of my Borderlands examples are from psychology, because it's hard to get at mind and consciousness and subconsciousness and altered states of consciousness, because they're such fuzzy concepts. Hard to measure.
0: And the Borderlands of Science, uh, the new book by Michael Shermer, subtitled Where Sense Meets Nonsense, is just published by... Oxford University Press, and as you could easily tell from our discussion, uh, there's a great deal in this book that will be of tremendous interest for all to read it. And by the way, a quick way to get your hands on it is to go to our website once again, go to our monthly program guide, and there, next to tonight's entry, uh, you'll find uh, a, a picture of, uh, a logo of the cover of this book. If you click on that, it takes you directly to the Barnes & Noble page for this book, and you can Uh, Order it within the next few minutes, if you so choose. Um, And with that, we are virtually out of time. I do want to take a few moments to talk about programs to come. Next week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, uh, we'll have taped interviews following Chicago Cubs baseball, if the games finish early enough, as I think at least two of them will. Then we're back to full-time two-hour programs on Thursday night. Next week, uh, we look at the life of Mike Royko, Uh, with a good friend of ours, Dick Siccone, who's done a major biography of his former colleague, Royko, and two other former colleagues, Bernie Judge and Rick Cogan, will join us as we uh, examine the life of a guy we all knew and much enjoyed, one of the great literary artists of contemporary American journalism. And on Friday night next week, an interview with former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Uh, Those are uh, features to come until next Monday night after the ball game. Thanks again to Michael Schirmer, and a cordial good night to all.